one person might use many different approaches over the course of a job or of their career or over their life, whatever. Um, and, and I think that's a really useful way for the students that I work with to, to think about applying the, the work that they're uh, or the practice they're developing um, through a course like this. So um, their approaches and we can think of, you know, the, the ways designers work as like tools in a toolkit. Um, and I always say that the like the, the speculative discursive approaches are actually maybe the musical instrument that gets jammed into your toolkit. So you've got your hammer and screwdriver and whatever uh, wrenches, and then you've got a flute. And it doesn't make any sense in there, but it's good to have it in there because you never know when you're going to have to stray away from just like putting nails in. You, you've got to kind of lighten the, the mood and, and change people's thinking. And sometimes you need that musical instrument in the, the toolbox. I'm Elliot Montgomery. I'm an assistant professor of strategic design at the New School, and I'm a co-founder of the Extrapolation Factory. This is episode 41 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast with Chester Bott and me, Julian Bleeker. Good evening, Chester. Good evening. Tonight we have a special guest, Elliot Montgomery. Elliot is at the Vanguard of Futures Design, a professor teaching and mentoring the generation of designers who will go on to practice with the futures mindset in a way that hopefully will yield a more conscientious factoring of the needs of the future. One thing that's hard to teach and hard to embody is a mindset that can feel into the near future. We seem to be predisposed to considering ourselves in the present and we have trouble planning for any kind of future. A futures mindset is one that is not easily taken on. Futures mindset requires a certain kind of humility and modesty. In this conversation, one area I was most interested in focusing on was a simple map or graph that Elliot produced that situates design along a continuum from art to strategy. Now, I want to emphasize right now, maps of this sort, I don't see them as truths with a capital T. They are more evocative. They are conversation starters, not conclusions. They are things to puzzle over and discuss. We listen to what they say and enter into conversation with them. And this way of seeing anything in the world is a cornerstone of the future's innovation-oriented mindset. Be in conversation with the world. Listen closely to what things in the world are saying to you. Learn to listen, a fundamental attribute of sense-making. Um, what about the podcast? Oh yeah, okay. Uh, here's my conversation with Elliot Montgomery. Yeah, one thing. Uh, please consider supporting the podcast. You can do so over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. All your support is greatly appreciated, and uh, it really helps move things along. It helps me feel that people are getting some value out of this, and it gives you a chance to feel good by giving some value back. Thank you. Now back to the podcast. It's, it's interesting to uh, to think about these different approaches, the academic, the, the corporate, or whatever, applied, however you want to call it. Um, and I, I certainly think that there are some folks who, who sit very squarely in their spaces, but I think a lot of folks that I know are kind of like holding multiple ends of the parachute and, and kind of like teasing back and forth in different directions and seeing how as they you know work in one of the spaces, that tension ends up kind of shifting what's happening in one of the other spaces. So there's, you know, some, uh, you know, the brandy swirling, uh, chin hair stroking, academic thinking that then trickles into the, excuse me, um, trickles into the, like the applied um, spaces. How are we actually using this in governments um, with people um, who are, are not necessarily in academia? Um, and then there's maybe a, a third space is 
which is kind of the like the more experimental spaces um, that might be, uh, you know, when um, I started Extrapolation Factory, Chris and I were looking at ways that we could use this in cultural institution contexts. And, and so that's almost like a third space. It's like a, a research forum. Um, it's not necessarily academic, uh, but it's also not the corporate applied uh, approach. So I, I think there are at least these, these three different uh, strings that we can pull on. And a lot of people have all three of those strings in their um, their day to day. They, they might be kind of sitting in, in one space or one camp more than the other two. But um, even those who are, are in the corporate world, you know, sit down with a, a book written by an academic and then they get their own thoughts churning. And before you know it, they're kind of like working on writing their own contribution or uh, kind of um, iterative uh, proposition building on whatever that academic was talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think what, one of the, one of the things that I realized um, when I, when the, the story I told you when we, when we met together in, in New York, that led me back to your graph. When, when was that? Do you remember when you did that by, by any chance? Yeah, I think the graph was um, something that I started working on. Like that. What, what'd you say? 1864, maybe? Roughly, roughly, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it was 2018. I think it was the beginning of 2018 when I um, started working on that and um, shared it in maybe like, I don't know, February, March of 2018. Yeah. So, yeah, not too long ago, honestly. Yeah. Do you remember why you did it? Oh, totally. Yeah, so that that graph was a, a response to questions uh, that I was being asked by students uh, in the MFA program at uh, Parsons, uh, and students were were looking at all the different ways people were approaching speculative thought and futures and design fiction and science fiction and and kind of um, coming to me saying like it it all feels like a big mishmash and i don't i don't get like what's actually happening um and i remember there was one student who said so you can kind of just do anything and call it speculative design and call it a day <laughs> and i felt like i felt like they were seeing it as as something that was just like this big bucket of um stuff that was not applied there was just like speculative design and then there was uh whatever you know design thinking five step hexagon and uh, so this was a, a moment where I was asking myself, like, how, do, how does this stuff sit in juxtaposition to some of the other ways that people are practicing in the broader design sphere? Um, and so starting to situate the, the continuum that I was using uh, from constraint to unconstrained was a helpful way for me to have those conversations um, where for this one student in particular who was saying, oh, you can just do anything and call it speculative design. I was saying, well, maybe there are some spaces where you can really, you know, let your imagination go wild, and um, maybe maybe those are are the spaces where there's so much freedom um, that you have to find your own constraints. And then there are others that are much more confined by um, the the way we're applying them in specific contexts. So when we talk about the differences between strategic foresight, for instance, and um, art fictions or art futures those have very different meanings um, when they're used by people who are, are using those approaches. Uh, and, and so for that student in particular, and then for you know, years of students after that, um, the diagram has been a helpful starting point uh, to, to engender this conversation about 
different approaches and, and different levels of constraint or perceived constraint that we have when we start working on a project um, in, in those spaces. Um, I think the other thing that was top of mind for me is that it felt like even within my peers, we were using all these different terms. Um, I think the Design uh, Futures Initiative had just launched and they were using the, the language Design Futures. Um, and then the meetups were called Speculative Futures. And then the conference was called Primer. And there were like all these different things. Yeah. And it was all kind of the same thing, but it wasn't. Um, and then of course, um, my, my friendship with Stuart Candy at the time where he was really kind of um, helping to tease out these uh, different approaches, uh, you know, foresight strategy and futures and um, speculative design and critical design and seeing where they overlap and then where they kind of have their own uh, value and, and strength. And so um, the, the diagram was, was partly a way for me to kind of like nudge conversations with other people whose thinking I respected. Um, and that's been actually one of the, the coolest parts of that project. Um, you know, in the last week or two, I've, I've seen two or three more of these bubble diagrams popping up here and there. Everybody's always got their own colors, you know. Sure, yeah. uh, the, <laughs> uh, the subjectivity of the colors is, is, is the first thing that people uh, want to tinker with. But then beyond that, the overlaps, I think, are, are some of the most interesting spaces. Um, questions around whether design thinking and speculative design have, uh, you know, shared space or, or whether they operate as two different worlds um, or, or they kind of like talk to each other, but they're not doing the same thing. Uh, those conversations really started to, to become very active um, once the diagram was out there in the world. Um, and I definitely never wanted to um, kind of locate the conversations but but more just to kind of follow them and see where they go and so every once in a while you know someone will bring a bubble diagram to my attention and they'll say hey look this kind of looks like what you were doing and i'll say yeah this you know people have found new ways new axes uh to to frame some of these terms and then there are always new terms that show up on the the map uh that that end up kind of adding to the nuances of the conversation that had started out back in 2018. Yeah, it, for sure. A evocative kind of conversation started, highly generative um, in many ways. And it sounds like from the experiences your students have had, clarifying in some fashion, I think there's an aspect of it. That the thing that, that I was drawn to, which would be cool to dig into a little bit, because we had some reflections when we were sitting, uh, eating, uh, pickled vegetables, um, was the, was the left to right, mm. the horizontal axis, mm -hmm. which at that particular time, when I was, when I came to it, I was really trying to puzzle this through. It's like, I have to convince someone as to where the value of this is, even though I know it's like, it's, um, exquisite for the value that it brings that is unmeasurable. Yeah, totally. When I think about the role of or roles of speculative design, and I'll use that term broadly to to talk about the the messy collection of of these different approaches, um, I think the one of the key differences for me is that there's no guarantee coming out of it, right? So when you go to fill in the blank design firm and ask them to design a better toothpaste tube, 
um, they're going to give you something that will stand on 99.9% of the, you know, counters of American households or whatever. And um, it can be opened by 99% of American toothpaste users. And like, you know, it, it's checking the boxes. It, it has to work. It has to do the job. Um, it's responding to problems of today. Uh, when you do a speculative design project or design fiction piece, it's not necessarily guaranteeing that it's going to work. And in fact, oftentimes it, it doesn't work. You know, either the speculation in the diegetic space doesn't necessarily add up and you kind of have to fill in the blanks with your imagination, or it doesn't work in that it's not provocative uh, uniformly to all people, right? And so one person will say, whoa, that's a crazy concept. I hadn't thought about that. And the next person will say, yeah, it doesn't do anything for me. And so that kind of um, uh, intention to dwell in the divergent, I think sets it aside from the more pragmatic design of XYZ product or service or strategy um, that usually we think of when we're doing um, some kind of strategic or, or design thinking project. Um, so, so that feels key uh, and, and that lends itself to this, this continuum of certainty, uncertainty, um, or constraint and unconstraint. We, we might allow ourselves to explore more deeply or further if, if we're not constraining ourselves to having to you know, have the toothpaste tube sit on the counter in the right way or be popped open with one hand. Um, we're, we're able to start to imagine these, these other concepts altogether that that just wouldn't come up in that world of constraint. Um, so I think that's that's a big part of it for me. Um, we're, we're stepping away from the problems of the now and imagining problems that could be, but maybe don't exist now because the conditions that would allow that problem uh, to exist don't exist now. So we're kind of inventing the problems and then inventing things that arise as a result of those problems. It's, it's like two tiered or three tiered. So in some cases, yeah. Who, who would want, who would ever want to invent problems? <laughs> you know, honestly, I think a lot of people there, there is an entire um, field of like risk analysis and risk assessment. And that's a big part of what they do in the, the airline industry, um, in the, the security and de defense um, fields, they're constantly inventing problems. They're just trying to imagine how things could go haywire or it could go wrong. And um, so I, I think that's kind of stuff that is done in other spaces as well. But I think um, people who are working in, in speculative design approaches are doing so, uh, but pulling it out of that numerical quantifiable risk assessment uh, way of inventing problems and instead kind of inventing almost the unimaginable problems and sometimes the uh, low likelihood problems, but those problems that that tease our brains to, to go places we wouldn't have otherwise gone. Yeah. And so how would how might you operationalize the that sort of that identifying the problem? Is there do you do, could you ever imagine that I guess I guess airlines are, are a good example for the for the safety considerations certainly. Um, so an example that came up uh, recently was a the you know the world of um, drone delivery, ubiquitous drone mm -hmm. delivery, or even drone transport, or you know commuting. Who knows what? Um, lots of um, 
vertical takeoff and landing kinds of vehicles of various mechanics and mechanisms and services and that kind of stuff. All yeah. very exciting, sort of. Um, but let's say it's all very <laughs> exciting. And, you know, exceptional amounts of capital being de devoted to it. A friend of mine's like CEO of this VTOL company, like they're building it, like they're running test flights and that kind of stuff. And the the design, the you know, the little design fiction that in a in a just a very impromptu back and forth, nothing formalized, whatever. It's just kind of, you know, two people kind of gassing on the topic. I I saw I wanted to make a tiny film of um a bunch of children just totally having fun, frolicking in a backyard. And, you know, I we're we're tuned to the the level of, you know, the kind of the energy that you would sort of hear and feel in that. And and in, in my little fiction is just like completely drowned out by the sound of which is a Los Angeles kind of you know the 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 back the the back backdrop to Los Angeles is the, the sound of helicopters, um you know with the vertical policing and all that, and mm -hmm. it's, I sort of imagine this like vignette where it's like you you want to hear the sound of the kids you absolutely do not hear it. maybe like a bouncy castle just kind of drops from the sky because it's been drone delivered and the kids are like. Right. <laughs> and so that was just a you know it was just like a fun thing like that would be a fun thing like if i had like a little film studio i was like hey let's just do this this afternoon and be silly sure really funny little you know little four minute bit right um, and then what of what value is that beyond people like you and me who kind of like naturally instinctively like be like oh that'd be a fun thing to do i would love to have that and so, ponder over it but for the you know, for my friend who's the ceo of this company who's like Look, we're we're just trying to make a nut. Like we we feel this is a real great opportunity. Um, we've got a lot of capital behind us. There's a lot of pressure to actually do this thing. Why are you telling me something that is gonna that is not one of the you know the four benefits that we have on the pitch deck about this? Company? Yeah, totally. Um, I think there's this expectation that designers deliver the goods, right? They like hand over the kind of like the top five value propositions that this thing needs to be able to, to enable. And um, once you get that deck, you, you kind of like hand it off to your junior level designers and they just go make the thing. And I, I think one of the key differences between that approach to doing design and a, a more discursive approach um, is it comes in the name itself. It's the discursive moment. Um, so in the uh, the work that I do and the teaching that I do, I'm I'm always bringing teams back to what I call the discursive moment. This this like situation or opportunity, uh, time space where we look at what we have just been presented and and now we kind of unpack that and and open that can of worms. Um, and what comes out is is actually sometimes much more interesting than um, the initial provocation. Um, so I did a project, uh, several years back where I was, I was proposing, uh, that there might be some interesting ways that the low carbon energy economy could borrow from the other, other businesses in the world. Um, those businesses that, that we think of as being maybe less scrupulous, um, social media businesses, advertising businesses, but if a low carbon energy economy company um, could basically take those tactics and apply them to their businesses, um, what would that business model look like? And would consumers of solar, of wind, of other renewables, would, would they accept these, these less scrupulous um, business practices if they were, at the end of the day, reducing the, the total carbon emitted into the atmosphere? And um, so I, I developed this pretty elaborate presentation 
um, including a series of design fiction physical props, uh, and presented this at a renewable energy symposium that was taking place uh, in London at the time. Um, delivered the entire presentation in character as a, a business person presenting a series of experimental business uh, propositions. And I delivered five different uh, hy hypotheticals. Um, and they went from very believable to completely outlandish. So by the time I got to the fifth one, the folks who were watching this presentation knew what was happening. But somewhere in the middle, they had to make that flip from, from mm. buying into the story to seeing that this was kind of a, a, a whatever, speculative proposition and a very playful one at that. And so at the end of the presentation, I knew I had succeeded when people started asking me questions in character and started like playing along right. with oh, this, yeah. right? And so it wasn't that they were, exactly, yeah. We, we created a LARP without them knowing it. Um, and so the, the kind of added bonus was that a number of the researchers who were presenting we're all going out to dinner afterward. And I was kind of the outsider in this world, but they invited me along to dinner with them. And, and we ended up having these amazing conversations at dinner about other speculative futures and propositions that could kind of go along with and accompany some of the, the ideas that I had presented in the talk. And so this was the discursive moment. This was this moment where things that I had presented got their imaginations cracking out of the space that they were in during their own presentations and exploring these other possibilities. And then, you know, hopefully some of that comes back into the research labs where they're doing their work. Um, I think, I think that's a, a key piece that this type of uh, design delivers. Uh, it, it's not the thing that the near future laboratory proposed, but it's all the ideas that are sparked when you engage with this film about the balloon castle dropping from the sky. Yeah. That's it, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah. It's the it's and it's something that um I haven't I haven't I haven't been saying as much lately, I don't think, but it, it was uh it was always it's the conversation starter. It's yeah. something that kind of opens up and and allows the kind of the, the the structure of the dialogue in a way to almost the syntax changes right um, and you then all of a sudden there's permission for things that would have always been excluded from the conversation by that those various kinds of um protection mechanics particularly in conversations which is like no that's outside of scope or mm -hmm. that's not a path we would follow down or you know all these kinds of ways in which things get excluded that oftentimes in my experience, um, not that I've spent like a, you know, maybe like a total of 15 years over my professional career within companies in a way, yeah. but you yeah. know, the company, they, they kind of build this kind of uh, institutional inertia against mm -hmm. even opening a conversation about something uh, that it's just, it's just not even done. And to then it becomes, it gets to this point where it's like, it's not even thought about Yeah, whatever it might be. There, there's no space for it. And I think one of the one of the things that you've reminded me of is that these approaches provide almost like this. It, it's almost like this movable platform. You can put it wherever you want. You do it in the mode of as as you did, you know, a kind of like a bit, you know, like some kind of uh, um, a performative element that all of a sudden puts people in a in a funny position. They're like, wait a minute, right? This guy, look at this. You believe what this guy's doing? This is amazing. Yeah. And so then it becomes entertainment. People relax. Their suspension of disbelief goes down. They do fun things like they start to laugh. Yeah. Make, you know, a little chuckle, a kind of little 
a little album <laughs> next to them and then right. into this other mode where now they're actually enjoying the benefits and power of luxuriating in the imaginative as opposed to no 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 no, no. we don't do this kind of stuff this is not yeah. not a real thing when you you called it a conversation starter but i, I think you and i both are you know uh, very deep into the world of starting the, the conversations we're talking about and I think what's actually happening in some of the best examples of these projects is very carefully crafted conversation starting, right? It's not just like a, a, an easy uh, two cent conversation starter. It's like almost excruciatingly perfectly shaped. And then you like drop that and stand back and this amazing conversation starts to happen. Um, and I mean, you, you mentioned the import of uh, like the emotional tone that, that happens in these conversations that, that come up oftentimes in, in speculative, you know, similar projects. Um, there's, maybe you know this work, um, some research by uh, Barbara Fredrickson. Um, she proposes this, this evolutionary theory that as early hominids, um, we were oftentimes in states of distress and uh, negativity. Uh, so emotional affect that was negative. Um, you eat berries that could kill you and you feel disgust and you throw up the berries. There's a, a animal that's chasing you. You feel fear. You run from the animal. You're constantly trying to like preserve your, yourself. Uh, and there are a few moments where you're not necessarily feeling negative affect. Those are the moments where there's nothing threatening your life. And those are the moments where in Fredrickson's words, you can broaden and build. You can start to like think beyond the things that are going to kill you today and you can start to think about the things you could do tomorrow and so i think in this um this regard creating spaces where we can playfully imagine futures or or hypotheticals other other worlds um and to do so in a, a like a semi-positive like neutral positive emotional state we're able to to break away from the things that are going to kill us or kill our business or kill our product today and we start thinking about these other tomorrows and i think that's super powerful and it's like it's part of our monkey brain it, it's like deep in there so <laughs> getting into that emotional space is is critical and i think that maybe to get to come back uh the sort of echoes of of my own kind of reflections on your graph, uh, your diagram, is that you know th this this work is getting closer to this kind of work in the in the big swirl in the middle, sort of roughly, is getting closer to where um, the feeling side of of our human consciousness, the yeah. intuition, the the permission to to feel as opposed to just analyze, mm -hmm. uh, to react to something without a lot of pre processing. Like just right. something also makes you chuckle, or makes yeah. you, or startles you, or kind of un, you know unsettles you, um, maybe in a in a in a kind of productive way. That yeah. is generative, not based on, uh, not not based on you know evidence or this should you know we can build on on this. It's more like, hey, that set me in this other direction. When you said that, I started thinking about this. Yep. Um, this this uh, just all those kinds of visceral kinds of experiences, which is one of the reasons why I, I think, curious about your thoughts on this, I, I tend to, maybe I'm just like a hands-on kind of guy, I like material things, um, the, the, the value of the, um, I don't know, like the object as opposed to the story, mm -hmm. not that I'm opposed to stories, but I find something uniquely 
activating about a thing. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe in conjunction with, but but distinct from. Again, not to say that 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 a good story it can't obviously produce. App. I mean, you read a good story, it's make you cry, um, yeah. laugh, or, or or get angry, or whatever it might be. But just the 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 thing, the object. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm a product designer in some ways. Like I like to be see what the thing looks like, and what it how the ways the possible ways in which you can translate a set of um, stimulus inputs. You know. Um, a, a, a stack of research and be like, you know what, all that, that actually, I think it looks like a, uh, um, you know, a diner. Yeah. A diner to represent all that research. That's cool. Like that. Um, I, I'm not sure that this, as you call it, the big swirl, the, the universe of, of speculative and discursive design, I'm not sure that it needs any more, like, you know, hashtag names or whatever. But um, one of the frames that I oftentimes challenge my students to engage with is this notion of embodied futures. And so oftentimes we talk about experiential futures, you know, the, what is the experience? And, you know, you walk through Disney World and you're experiencing things. There's like a giant Mickey Mouse staring at you trying to take pictures with your kid. Uh, but I think there's a very different thing when you get into the, the state of embodied futures, you know, you, you pick up an object, an artifact, and all of a sudden, like your, your body just tells you to do something with it, right? And it's, it's no longer kind of you as yourself surrounded by Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. It's actually you kind of like being in the world, you're living in that future. And so this idea of embodiment, I think, cracks through the, the separation between audience member and uh, performer uh, and instead kind of invites uh, people into the fiction. It, it's almost like a, a welcome card uh, to say like, hey, now it's now it's your turn to role play. Now it's your turn to to animate this this future. And when you have physical artifacts, as you start to animate these futures, you're, you're doing so in ways that your brain might not even necessarily know it is poised to do, right? You, you pick up the thing and your body just kind of knows how to do a certain thing with it. It, it starts to play with it or tinker with it or uh, knock it on something in an interesting way. And these, these things come about. Um, they're they're um, almost just like instinctual and intuitive. And I, I think that's the power of the um, manifestation of, of physical stuff in uh, speculative design. I think that's where um, design fiction is so powerful. You just, you can like knock on the future, pick it up, toy with it, put it in your mouth, whatever, um, break off a piece and give it to your friend. Yeah, yeah. That, that sounded, was that something um, you were describing to me, your students' kind of final project that took place? In yeah, Denver? yeah, totally. Um, I, I think I mentioned I, I co-teach a class at Parsons with Radha Mystery, who's been on your podcast. Um, and this year, Radha and I were really interested in in really returning to a, a like a in person three D uh, flesh and human world. Uh, getting off of Zoom. And, and so as the final project in our, our studio this semester at Parsons, we invited students to develop uh, hypotheticals that they could actually deploy in Times Square in New York City. Um, we had an amazing partnership with the Times Square Alliance. They came in and, and gave us this kind of backstory of Times Square, as well as some of the really interesting ways their experimental prototyping in Times Square to test what's possible in New York City. 
And from there, then students got into these groups and, and started devising essentially pop-ups that allowed people to live in a future for a short period of time. Uh, and we led a, a walking tour of, of Times Square Futures. And so people could walk from uh, site to site to site, each one kind of animating a different version of a Times Square future. Uh, and as people would uh, come across one of these pop-ups, they would start to like feel like they were in that world. Uh, and so one of them was a um, recruitment campaign uh, looking for folks who might be willing to go work in a lunar landfill. Uh, and of course the perk there is, is a free trip to outer space. Um, there, there was a group that was uh, hawking uh, kind of like a, um, uh, an implant that would track your, your um, energy generation, the passive energy generation that uh, you create, almost like a Fitbit type of thing. Um, and after your entire life, you've accumulated a certain amount of energy just by living, by walking around, and you can pass this on to your next of kin. Um, that one really stirred a lot of thought and had some really interesting conversations uh, happening around it. So each one of these was was kind of um, situating what you might already find in Times Square, but in an alternate reality Times Square or future Times Square. And some of them were um, longer time horizons, but many were actually pretty near future, 10 years, 12 years, something like that. Um, so yeah, this was this was a perfect example of, of the embodied future stuff that I'm trying to get these students to do and super fun. Yeah. And then how, um, so they're actually, they're, were they interact, they were interacting with, you know, the, the, the tourists from, from Britain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were interacting with uh, everyday New Yorkers, tourists, um, a couple of police officers who were uh, a bit skeptical at first, but once they were assured that nothing was being sold illegally, then they were happy. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, a few invited guests here and there, uh, professors and um, their peers. So it, it was an interesting mixed bag. Yeah. What did the students report back? Like, what did they what did they learn from the experience um, just in terms of how this sort of work can be productively deployed and that kind of thing? I think one of the big biggest learnings that one of the students uh, reported back, we, we had a, a roundtable discussion that was this beautiful, almost three hour long um, reflection on the day and it happened a week later. So they had time to, to piece things together. Um, but one of the, the reflections was this idea that that you you can't force people into a future vision. You have to let people get there on their own time. And so some folks would walk up and, and listen and, and kind of, you know, give a quizzical look and walk away. And others would, would come up and maybe ask a few probing questions and um, then kind of, I don't know, uh, make their way away. But then there would be certain folks who would come up and, and really get into it. And um, as those folks would kind of play into the, the narrative or the, um, the fiction, the students would play back. And, and so there had to be this ability to uh, improvise and, and to jump into a deeper um, part of the story with those folks, while also just kind of the, the gloss, the, the very like uh, surface level conversation with others. Um, and then there were a few stories where someone would come up and talk to a group of students, leave, and then come back 20 minutes later and say, I had something I needed to ask you. <laughs> those were really cool where people clearly had like a bug planted and they needed to get something off their chest. They, they had something they had to share. 
um, that happened twice. So these types of things where where um, you're you're kind of letting people come into the the speculation on their own accord in their own time as as they're ready, I think are super important. And that translates into my um, corporate work and and um, advising work that I do as well. Um, when I'm working with clients, i'm I'm constantly kind of opening doors to allow them to walk into the speculation on their own, as opposed to kind of, you know, packing it into a, a two hour workshop. And it's like, it's either now or never, you know, put on your fiction hat and let's go. Yeah. Um, I, I think this stuff takes time and it, it takes a different amount of time for every person. And, and we kind of, as we're doing the work, we have to be very open to this, this range of um, entry points. Yeah. And then what, what are you hoping, like when someone, when someone is able to walk through that, uh aside you know aside from any specifics what are you hoping is going on kind of in their in their consciousness like what what is it that absent the what might be like a a very specific set of questions that might be that right. might be the purpose of of introducing a a speculation of some sort um is there is there anything beyond the kind of pragmatic that maybe maybe the simple way to ask this is like, why do you do this? Yeah. Um, so there are uh, maybe two ways to answer that question. The um, the short answer is I think this type of work it, it's kind of like uh, exercising our bodies, but for our brains, we're we're constantly stretching our capacity to. Um, think beyond the the confines of of what our world might allow us. Um, sometimes I talk about this as, as like social rule bending, where we're trying to bend the the social rules that we adhere to. Um, and this is something that I think oftentimes is a reflexive activity. So for the students who were out in Times Square uh, for this this tour of of futures, walking tour futures, they were in essence bending their own social rules as they were out there. They were they were testing the limits of their ideas. So there is this reflexive capacity. Um, but I think for the the folks who engaged in these conversations, and we can think of this um, pop up that I did with my students as as maybe like a version zero point one prototype, uh, but but something at a larger scale with more duration, uh, more funding. Um, could actually serve to engender conversations, societal conversations about where we're going. Um, I think in, in that uh, one day, there were conversations that people were already asking about how we might change our relationships to public space and to others in public space. There was one pop-up uh, that was proctoring um, emotional well-being tests. And based on the emotional well-being test, you were granted access or denied access to a number of, of consumer stores in Times Square. So if you're like 80% happy, you're allowed to go into the, um, the Lego store. But if you're only 60% happy, you can't go there, but you can go to the H&M, right? There's a lower happiness threshold. Um, and so then they give you your kind of your um, permissions and you can go about your day. And even if that necessar isn't necessarily a provocative idea for, for someone, I imagine they walk away from that conversation asking how how do we want to engage with one another in um, 
in our, our public context? What, what is the changing face of our, our urban centers going to be? And how do I, how do I feel about this? How does this sit with me? Um, so I, I think having these types of conversations at a, a larger scale uh, feeds back into the, the collective imaginary that, that we start to build around the, the shifting culture of the places that we inhabit and the, the types of interactions that we have. So I think that's the, the broad one. Um, if you put it into a, a client context, I think you can distill these types of interactions in very um, accessible ways, right? You can um, set up a, a pop-up for a, a consumer group or a, a client group and, and capture this discursive moment, uh, build on it. And, and that leads into some kind of corporate strategy, product strategy, et cetera. I think in, in the public forum, um, there's a, it's a bit more hit or miss. Uh, we don't necessarily track the types of conversations that happen with someone on a street corner. Um, but again, at a larger scale, I, I think there is potential, real potential value uh, to doing these types of things as an ongoing uh, collective act. Yeah. So, so maybe um, just focusing on the, the, I guess we're just calling it the client context, kind of commercial context. Is the thing you were describing to me is my mind went to um, very quickly went to the, uh, what do they call them? They're, they're like the, where, where some agency would call you up and say like, Hey, um, do you, are you a, uh, are you a gen drinker? You might say like, yeah, okay, we're doing a thing. Do you want to come for like 500 bucks? We'll sit and we'll talk about, uh, stuff and you sign an NDA and they end up showing you, you know, variety of right. bottles of gin, which one are you more drawn to? Are you, do you, you know, I don't, I don't drink. So I can sort of say like, like a smoky gin. I don't think that's such a thing, but they, you know, since <laughs> yeah. they, they just they, invented they, it. They, yeah, they, yeah, right. Um, they, they confabulate these kind of fictions in the form of a kind of Q and A. Yeah. Um, and in order to kind of get a sense, I guess that's consumer insights kind of work. Right. Right. Um, it, there seems to be, I think, I think I drew it on my kind of drawing of your graph, like that as a component of the kind of work that, that I think is legible yeah. in client context. Like, oh yeah, we, mm. I totally get that. Like we, we have this one agency we use, they're great. They're in LA, San Francisco, Tokyo, and Berlin. So we, we kind of asked them to put together a, a program for us to do these kinds of assessments. It comes back to the marketing and brand people or whatever, maybe the product design people. And they take a look at it and they're like, hmm, okay, cool. Smoky Gin, like let's let's do a let's look into that yeah. possible you know niche within a niche or whatever. Um, it almost feels like it's not that far of a gap between that and actually formula you know doing something that is closer to the uh, the LARPing experience. Maybe yeah. even in a controlled context, it's like we've got four gins here. One is like um, normal, and one is like smoky. Would you like to try the smoky? People are like, what? Not going to do it when you just lean into it in a way, um, yep. I, you know, for me, I'm, I'm trying to find through, I'm trying to find the, the, the multitude of ways in which this, this kind of practice is, I keep using the word like operationalized, like the, the thing that, that makes, that could maybe enhance or make more effective or just even, you know, different from existing practices for understanding where the world is where it could go and, um, and, and how do we get there? Yeah. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, 
throw in some extrapolation factory stuff. Uh, Chris Wobkin and I have done a bunch of work in the participatory futures space. And although it, it might not be this, uh, you know, futures gin uh, focus group that you're talking about, I, I think we've we've playfully gotten into these opportunities to to challenge folks to to get into this um, future construction mode um, for a, a short period of time push something out into the world and then stand back and, and see whether they uh, actually like what they've created. Um, the last few projects that uh, we did before the pandemic uh, were, were really built around this idea of, of leveraging improvisational role play as a way to, to tap these uh, inclinations we might have that we don't even um, think about. Um, we did one project at the Queens Museum in New York City uh, where we brought together a group of folks who live right around the museum itself, which is actually the site of the um, World's Fair from 1939 and 1964, and got these neighbors to, to start uh, thinking about how their neighborhood might transform in a possible future. Um, and then inside one of the galleries at the Queens Museum, we actually built a, like a fictional microcosm, a mini city, with all of the, the hypotheticals that they had generated. Um, we had them build out props and um, objects, artifacts that they could use to demo each one of their scenarios. And so we had a, a tiny uh, subway station. We had um, a, a small park inside the gallery. We had restaurants. Um, and each one of these were, were meant to kind of build off of the conversations that they had had. So, this is maybe in some ways what you're you're talking about. These like uh, focus groups that that ask us not to imagine the thing that responds to yesterday's issue, but imagines the the problems of tomorrow or the opportunities of tomorrow that that we're just not able to to tap into yet. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> it's always fun to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, no, likewise. Okay, there he goes. Absolutely. That was Elliot. Yeah. Please right, consider supporting the podcast Wonderful. over patreon.com so slash yeah, near future laboratory. Yeah, Share this absolutely. podcast with your teams, your friends, your colleagues, your family. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Julian, and I'm out. <laughs>